0: Father, we thank you for today, we give you praise. Father, we love you, we bless your name, we magnify you because you are God, we exalt you because you are the King of kings, you are the Lord of lords, you are the ancient of days, we say may your name be praised in Jesus' name. Father, as we go into your word today, I pray that you speak to your children by your spirit and by your power. Speak through me, but also speak to me, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> so we've been examining the theme, represent God, and last week I started on a topic which I conclude today, which is called, Be an Example. In book of 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, as a refresher, it says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in faith, in purity. Amen? And uh, last week we spoke about what it means to be a, 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 an example, rather, in word. And uh, We talked about how conversation here means manner of living. And I, and I spoke to you about how you cannot take a break from being a Christian. That manner of living has less to do with individual deeds and actions and more to do with the continual progression of your life. And you have to be an example constantly. I talked about people who would take a break from Christianity when they're in certain situations or in, among certain people in certain crowds. And we are saying that Paul is warning, warning Timothy about this. He's dissuading him from this. And we spoke about love or charity Uh, We explained why charity is written as love in the King James Version. We talked about the fact that in the Greek there are many words for love, depending on the kind of love that you are describing. And (coughs) we mentioned words like eros and philia and storge. And we mentioned the fact that all these descriptions of love mean different things. Eros is conjugal, sensual, physical love. Storage is love among family members, the familiar bonds. We talked about philia, which is experiential love, which is the love that you have in friendship. And we talked about how, in the original Greek, what agape meant was love for humanity, a general love that applies to everyone, which is why it's called charity, because that is what the contemporary meaning of charity even means today. If someone says he's starting a charity organization, what the person is saying is that they want to give to humanity. Maybe they focus on a particular sect, but they don't necessarily have to know those people to give to them. But the early church recognized and understood that it is impossible for man without God to truly love another man, to show love to humanity without any experience, without any expectation, without any attached to it, the only person that has ever displayed that kind of pure, unadulterated love is God, which is why in our Bibles when we see agape, it is the love of God, the love that has no, nothing added to it, purely sacrificial, purely for the other person, without thinking first of his own. And that's the love that we should have as believers. Today we're going to look at faith, and we're going to look at Purity, and we'll close. So he says we should be an example in faith. What does that mean? So the word faith here is a word in Greek called pistei, which is gotten from a word called pistis. So the transliteration is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S. This is generally the word that is used for faith in the Old Bible, particularly the New Testament that was written in Greek. So when you see now faith is a substance of things hoped for, that word there is pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S in Greek. But you see, the, this word can mean a lot of things. I think one of the things that I've said here a lot and I've spoken to us about is how many languages are more colorful, they are richer than our English language. Even our traditional languages are richer. They are richer in expression. So we tend to have more nuance to the way we speak. English is very, very rigid in a sense. Most languages in the world, even German, Spanish, French, they have more color, they are more nuanced than English. So in your traditional language, at least in Yoruba, if you say "o" and you say "e," you're talking about two different people. So if you're saying "e," you're saying it to an elder. If you're saying, oh, you're saying it to someone that you consider to be a contemporary. So if you say, "ushé", "ushé" is thank you. But I cannot tell an elder, ushe I'm insulting that man. Even if I'm still saying thank you, I have to say eshe, that's Yoruba. And it's like that in many other languages. I, I listen to enough Japanese in my life to know that it exists in Japanese as well too many things to represent different type of people if you're talking to a teacher that's what you that's how you speak you have to add something at the end if you're talking to someone that you're familiar with there's something that you can add at the end you cannot just call someone by their first name usually you address them by their surname it takes a while before familiarity comes and you start to address one in a certain way that's different languages for you english is different so in greek You see, this word piste, which we get pistis from, in the context of this verse, is not speaking about the faith that we are speaking about in Hebrews. So, what I mean is saving faith. What he's speaking about here specifically is firm conviction or persuasion. He cannot be speaking to Timothy about saving faith because Timothy is already saved, in fact, he was sent to be the pastor of the church. How can you be talking to a pastor of the son, like a spiritual son, and telling him to be an example in faith, in terms of belief in God? That's not what he's speaking about here. He's speaking particularly about conviction. What does this mean for us? What does what did this mean for Timothy? It meant that in the world that Timothy was living in back then, where the knowledge has started to increase, worldly knowledge has started to increase. When man has started to continuously walk away from God, when people have started to find more reasons why they should stay away and go away from what? From the faith. That Timothy should do the opposite. He should stand what? Firmer still. That in the face of opposition, he should remain strong. That's conviction. That's conviction. And that's what it still means for us today. Being an example in faith or in firm persuasion and conviction means that as we live currently in a culture where it is becoming more and more unfashionable to say you are Christian, and it's becoming more and more unfashionable to even say you believe in a God. Let's even leave Christian out of it. When it's becoming a norm that if someone should go on Twitter, (coughs) And should thank god for any achievements they have in this life if you check under the thread i can promise you that the most comments you see there are well you did it by your own power you were hardworking. you were this you were that stop stop um, giving any plaudits to a being that does not exist i promise you you see it there and by a while ago there's this football i can't remember what league he came from that really i don't know who you probably know who I'm talking about. Probably Biola. I mean, he's really, really huge. Akifena, thank you. So I think they won a game. They were promoted to Liguan and that division. And I saw that he was very excited. That he was so happy, and he kept thanking God and thanking God. And he was obviously someone that identified with Christianity. He was a Christian, and he was thanking God. And he was like he was thanking God in interviews, thanking God, everywhere. He was just thanking God. He was so happy. And I saw the video and I scrolled. I just I remember back then, it's been a while, and I scrolled up and most of the comments were, well, it's because you were hardworking. You worked hard. And you did. And I was like, okay. People are refuting the fact that, so the fact that he's thanking God is what's bothering them. Really. Because it's becoming more and more unfashionable to be Christian, and what Timothy is saying, or what Paul is saying to Timothy rather is that even in these situations, we have to stand even firmer. That's what it means. That's what pistis is here. It's firm persuasion or conviction. So I guess the first question we have to ask is, how does conviction come? Conviction is not a force. It's not the what. It's not a force. It's not an emotional outburst that you have that suddenly just will spoil you to stand for God. That's not how it happens. What I'm saying here is conviction is not reactive. People who have conviction, it's not as if it's not a reaction to get? Conviction is not performative either, it's not a performance. And most of our interpretations of conviction have been reduced to reactions and performances. What do I mean by reactions? People think that the expression of their conviction is if someone says something bad about Jesus in their office and they get upset and they say, you cannot be saying that about Christians. So they're, they're standing their ground. No, not really. Not always. Conviction is not performative. It's not a performance. It's not as if you have to feel obligated that when someone says something against Jesus, like, I have to say something. It's not about what you say online. Most of the time, I, I avoid every online discourse because it's reasonable. Nobody's, people are just, they just want to hold on to their own opinion, and that's all. So, and some people engage in these unnecessary battles and say it's, you know, they have They want to show their position. No, it's not conviction. It's not performative. It's not a performance. It's not for anyone. Conviction is born out of relationship. Conviction is a product of your relationship with God. That's what it is. You can only build conviction through experience. And I mean like experience with who? With God. As you continue to place him in the center of your affairs, the strength of your conviction would increase. Just to prove what I am saying today, just to show you, I want us to look at the life of a man in the book of Exodus. His name is Moses. And I want to show you the difference between conviction and reaction, or conviction and performance. Let's open to Exodus chapter 2. We'll read from verse 9 to 14. I read for time. Exodus 2, 9-14 says, And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. Verse 10. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses. And she said, Because I drew him out of water. And it came to pass in those days... When Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens. And he spied an Egyptian smiting an Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of, his, of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did wrong. Wherefore smitest thou thy fellow? And he said, Who made thee a prince and a judge of us? Intendest thou to kill me as thou kills the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, Surely this thing is known. Amen. This was Moses who was a man that God clearly wanted to use. And he found himself in a position where he was privileged. He was in a privileged position. He was living like a prince because he was taken and adopted as the son of the daughter of the king. So he was living like a prince. But he was very aware that he was not an Egyptian. He knew. He knew. He knew because his mother raised him. Even if he wouldn't have, even if you say he didn't know by the way he looks, which I'm pretty sure he did, because the Jewish people do not look like the Egyptians. (laughs) How many of us know that the Egyptians of that time were predominantly black? (laughs) Exactly. So Moses could not have looked in skin tone and everything like the people he was living with Moses knew he was different although the Jews were also darker than they are now but Moses would have known even from how he looked from his facial structure the way you're are also able to recognize people from different tribes even today that's I'm not one of these these people that I'm living with inside his palace those are probably what my people but even if you want to say he didn't know from that who raised him who nursed him his own mom His mother must have told him stories of his own life and of his own people. So Moses knew who he was and the Bible says he looked upon the burdens of his people and he wanted to help. So what did he do? He went out and he killed an Egyptian. What's that? That's ginger. (laughs) He was what? He was gingering in our own colloquial terms. Just ginger. That's not conviction. Because he thought he was ready. But this plan that he currently had, it was not sustainable. What God wanted to use him to do was far beyond what he was doing now. Killing one guy will not solve the problem. The only person that can solve the problem is God. And the only person that can be addressed to solve this problem is Pharaoh himself. Killing if he kills a guard every single day for the next forty years that he spent in Egypt, and let's even make the assumption that they didn't catch him, Israel will still be in bondage. True or false? True. So this was a man that thought he was ready. This was a man that was he reacted to these conditions and the situations of his people. And after the reaction, the next day, he saw two of his own people fighting. And what did he do? He put on a performance. In his mind, he probably wanted to show them that I'm on your side. I'm one of you. So he saw two of them fighting. And he carried his head to try to solve the fight. Only for one of them to tell him, do you want to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian? And Moses knew that he had been found out and he ran away. But you see, all of this was God's plan because like i said the thing about conviction is conviction does not come without relationship you have to experience god first and if you check the book of exodus chapter 3 from verse 10 to 11 you would see his call exodus 3:10 to 11 says come now therefore i will send thee unto pharaoh and thou mayest bring forth my people the children of israel out of egypt And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and I should bring forth the children of Israel out of what? Egypt. This was the beginning of Moses developing a relationship with God. Because after Moses saw the burning bush, Moses got this call. And when he got the call, if you read through chapter four, you'll see a lot of things that God did with Moses, with Moses' rod with Moses' leprous hand. Signs that God was giving Moses just to show Moses that he is with him. And Moses was still feeling inadequate. And God told him, your brother would follow you. After he said, I'm a stammerer, I cannot go. All these experiences that Moses was happening, having between chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4, I hope we know that it didn't happen in one day. It's not as if all these events happened in one day. We're just reading the story. It's a progressive relationship that Moses was having with God at different times when Moses was starting to believe in God more and more and what he's saying. And we see the product of that conviction in chapter 5, verse 1, when he finally got in front of Pharaoh and he said, and afterwards Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, "Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in what? In the wilderness. What made Moses to, to be able to say, God says, the Lord God of, what? of Israel? It's not because he has experienced the Lord God of Israel. He has met with him. He gave him a name. He says, I am who I am. I am that I am. At the burning bush. Moses had had a series of experiences with his God that had now built his conviction. He was convinced that nothing could happen. That what he was sent to do, God really sent him to what? To do it. You can't have conviction without experience. You have to stick to God. Through the tough times, that's when your conviction grows. If God has never healed you before, it will be difficult for you to believe in him as a healer the first time. But if you stick with him, next time anything comes to you, you just wave it off. Because God has done this. I've seen him do what? This. If all your life, the entirety of your provision has been dependent on someone, maybe a family member, a father or a mother, an uncle or an auntie, and even when you pray to God in your heart, you know that you are praying (laughs) to You're praying to your parents or your uncle or your auntie. It's will be difficult for you to believe in God for provision. You first have to go through something. So when you start to say, God is my provider, after your conviction has deepened in that area, nothing can shake you. Nobody can just come out from anywhere and say, God does not provide for people. You just look at the person like, what are you saying? Because <laughs> you've experienced it. So conviction is not a reaction. It's not something that falls from the sky. You have to know your God. You have to know what? You have to know your God. So when Paul is telling Timothy, be an example in faith, he's telling Timothy that you have to be persuaded. You have to stand firm and stand strong in what you know to be true. Because trials will come. Because tests to come. The three Hebrew boys in the book of Daniel, were they the only princes that came from Israel? No. They were not the only princes. They were not the only ones chosen by Nebuchadnezzar. At all. All those other princes that decided to bow, didn't they teach them the same thing where they were coming from? Didn't they read the same... Same law to them. They knew the law now. What's the difference between them and three of the three Hebrew boys? It's conviction. The others might have had head knowledge, but they had no experience. They had no revelation into who God was. But these three did. So when push came to shove, they said, okay, we can't do this thing. We can't bow. We can't. We can't. Same with Daniel. In fact, the entire story with Daniel and the Lions, then, one of the most fascinating things about that story is that Daniel pretended as if he didn't hear this decree. He didn't even act like there's no record that says that, okay, the king decreed it, then Daniel considered. Daniel just continued to live his life. And the thing is that the people that were trying to set Daniel up, they knew him so well that they knew that this thing would not move him. Do you understand? How did they know their plan was going to work? They knew their plan was going to work because they knew Daniel enough to know that Daniel had a conviction about his God. They knew that this trap was laying, because if they thought to themselves that the decree would make Daniel to stop praying, then it's pointless. There's no trap here. True or false? True. If Daniel was, a, was an unstable person, that every wind of doctrine, if they say, "Okay, let's do this one," he say, "Okay, no problem, let's try to do it." They would not have had a problem with him. There would not have been a point in setting a trap. The entire point of the trap is that even they, they were aware of Daniel's conviction. They knew that nothing would shake this man. So let's just use that thing that we know about him to put him in trouble. That is where we need to get to. It can't be an example without this. You can't represent God without conviction in your workplace, in your social circles, in your individual families. You can't be an example without conviction. You have to live a life of conviction. You have to be able to say, no, I can't do that one. I'm sorry. I'm a Christian now. I'm sorry, that one is not for me. Knowing fully well that there may be consequences, nobody needs to tell you. There are some things that are not counseling issues. How many of us know there are some things that are not counseling issues? <laughs> you should just know. Can not just come and meet the pastor? They said we should come and go to, so this this is just an example. Nobody came and said this to me. <laughs> they say, okay, pastor. So they said we should go to, my, my father and my mother just said that there's this baba that they want to go and see. And they say we should go and see the baba because something, something, something. And hey, pastor, should I go? should i go does that one need counseling no i don't even need to know about it you can tell me after oh my family went there i didn't go with them okay good because you should have personal conviction nobody's going to live your christian life for you you the one living it on your own because you will stand before god alone so that's where we are, and that's where we should be. Let's talk about the second thing that um, Paul says to Timothy here. He says, In what? Impurity. In Impurity. In now, I'm going to tell you something interesting about this word, purity. In the New Testament Greek, there are two primary words that are used for purity. The first is used for holiness as well and sanctification and talks about moral purity. Hmm? That's Hagiasmos, H-A-G-I-A-S-M-O-S, just in case you want to go and check. It's used about ten times in the New Testament. But that's not the word that is used here. The word that is used here is hagnia, H-A-G-N-E-I-A. And it's used just two times in the New Testament. And it, are, it's used both times in this letter to Timothy. First here, and the second in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2. And that's because what it is communicating specifically is physical purity. He's talking about chastity. So it's also a word that is is, is used for chastity as well. He's talking specifically about moral purity with regards to sexual conduct. So I guess the first question you should ask yourself is, why do you think that Paul thought it was important to talk to Timothy about his physical purity? Giving all the examples I've just given you, what it means. It's because Timothy is a young man. And he has flesh and blood. And he needs to be careful. Timothy like it was like a son to Paul. It will be pretense or wrong fatherhood or spiritual mentoring, whatever you want to call it, even if mentoring is not a spiritual word. I'm using it now. But It would be wrong guidance for Paul to skip over his physical purity. Like we said last week, Timothy was a man in his 30s. He was a young man. He was going to a new church to lead the church. And if you check in 1 Timothy 5, verse 2, you will see that Paul spoke about it even specifically towards women. So in First Timothy 5, and five, and two, five verse 2, he says, The elder women as mothers. This is how he's telling them to relate with them. So he says, Rebuke not an elder, from verse 1, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren. The elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all Purity. That's the second time this word purity is used. And he's not talking about sanctification. He's not talking about holiness. He's talking about physical purity. His conduct, his moral conduct with regards to sexual life. Paul knew what he was saying. The truth is that God created sex made sex? God. It's not man. It's God. It's not the people that are making videos now. It is not the pornographic websites. It is not Hollywood. They cannot take the credits because the devil cannot make anything. No matter how much sexual perversion ex- ex- exists in this world today, it is not the devil that made it. The devil only perverted it. As he does with everything. God is the one that made sex. And God put down the parameters for sex, which is marriage. Sex equals marriage, marriage equals sex. Like, sex outside marriage is something else. It puts us in trouble. And it's important to God. There are five statements that I want to make on this. The first is that sexual purity is essential to your work with God. And any pastor or any preacher or any church that emphasizes it is lying to you. Hmm? It's essential to your work with God. I've had the opportunity to hear a lot of stories in this my short life. Among young people and the things that happen in some of the churches that they go to, I've heard stories of pastors who, in the process of counseling to people who potentially want to get married, give a seal of approval on sexual relationship simply because they've already decided to marry. So example, like two people come for counseling and the pastor answered, eh, since two of you are eventually going to get, the marriage is not fine now, it's okay. I've heard that in churches, just don't want to mention names. Churches that you'd be surprised by. It happens. It's wrong. It's very wrong. It's essential to go. Can even open the Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'll read from verse 3 to 5. It says, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, as every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not who. Which know not who? God. Sexual purity is essential to your work with God. Very essential. The second is that you are vulnerable to sexual immorality. Say you are vulnerable. No, say I am vulnerable to sexual immorality. Say it with confidence. I am vulnerable to sexual immorality. I'm not saying that you are doing it, I'm saying you are vulnerable to it. Everyone is. And one of the greatest deceits that the devil does with Christians. Is getting them to a point where they're like, where they start saying things like, "It can't be me. It can never happen to me, Sha." Bible says, "Watch and what, pray. Better watch." The Bible says that he that thinketh his stance, he stands, take heed lest he what, he fall. Galatians 6.1 says that if you see your brother falling and he does something, you go and pray. <laughs> that that thing that happened to him not before you, what, too. You have to be careful. On this issue, we are on the defensive. And the reason why we are defensive is the third point I'm going to make. You are not just vulnerable, you are targeted by the devil for sexual immorality. As a target on your back. Because the devil knows how important it is to God. The devil knows What? how important it is to God so it's beyond vulnerability it is what targets. there's a target on your back a target on what on your back and you have to be aware of it you have to know because it's to guide how you live your life there's so many allowances that you cannot allow There are so many things that you cannot afford to do. There are so many situations that you cannot afford to let yourself be placed in. And it's because, which leads me to point four, your body does not belong to you. It belongs to God. Your body belongs to who? To God. It does not belong to you. Can we open to 1 Corinthians 6.20? I'll read because of time. It says, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirits, which are God's. For ye are bought what? With a price. What's the price? The blood of Jesus. You are bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself anymore. Your body does not belong to you. It belongs to God. And he should be in charge of it. And the fifth point, which I want you to take note of, is sexual purity it starts in the mind, not the body. It starts where? In the mind, not the body. Remember when Jesus was speaking, when he was teaching his sermon and he started to talk to his disciples and the people around and he started to pick on all the laws and started to expand on the laws to teach them and make them understand that the letter of the law is different from the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is what inspires The letter of the law, not the other way around. And the reason he was doing this is because the Pharisees, because they lacked any sort of prophetic inkling or direction, because at the time of Jesus, at the time of his life, prophetic direction from God had died. After Malachi, essentially, God spoke to a few people, and you can see that in the book of Luke. He still had relationships with men. But in terms of a voice... A mouthpiece of God that will go and speak the word of God and what God is saying to men, to people. That sees after Malachi. And then we had a 400-year period where nobody could say that it was a voice of God. Then John the Baptist came and started to cry again, which is why John the Baptist was so special and rare, because before him it's been a while. <laughs> Since someone has come and said that God sent them to do something. It wasn't happening. And Jesus started to teach them, and he, talk, he spoke to them about lust. And he spoke to them about adultery and fornication. And he talked about even if you look at her lustfully, you've already what? You've already sinned. What's Jesus talking about there? He's not trying to make you sin conscious or make you legalistic. He's trying to make you understand that it starts from the mind. Because it is the allowances and the things that we allow to settle and fester in our minds that eventually turn to action. And action becomes habit. And habit becomes lifestyle. And that's all. So it doesn't start from the body. It starts from the mind. We have to watch what we watch. Let's be careful what we use our eyes to see, what we use our ears to hear, what we read, what we consume as information, the places that we go, the people that we interact with. All of this is what festers in our minds and leads us down the path that God doesn't want us to be on. Amen. In conclusion, I want to speak to you about what the Christian view on sex should be and why it's so important to God. A reason that you may not have considered. Hmm? There is nothing more important in relationship with God than covenant. Than what? What? covenant. Everything in our Christian life, Christianity itself stands upon a what? A covenant. Covenant that was mediated by the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is the seal of the covenant. Without covenant, nothing gets done in this world. And I think there was a series we had at some point earlier this year down to the third quarter where we're taught about the God of covenant. Nothing gets done without covenant. And the marriage covenant is one of the most important covenants in the whole of the Bible. Because the physical marriage covenant is a type of the spiritual marriage covenant between Jesus, who is the bridegroom, and we, who are what? The bride. But you see, we could not become the bride until that price of that blood was paid, shed on the cross. And it's that blood that seals us. The blood is the seal. It's the reason why you make small mistakes. The ground does not open and swallow you. The way he swallowed them in the, the desert. And I say that with all seriousness because the way God dealt with them then was the retribution will come even when he forgives. When David repented, did God forgive him? Yes. God told him, okay, but because you've done this, this is what happened with all your sons. When he did the census again, did God forgive him? Yes. But he told him to choose. <laughs> because back then they were covering sin. Covering sin. No, we're not covering sin. You plead the blood of Jesus upon your life, and it doesn't exist before God anymore. God has nothing to remember. And it was sealed by that blood. And the seal of a physical marriage covenant. It's sex. It is. It's not what you do in court or what you do in church. Because I said physical, right? Coming together of two bodies, that's the seal. It's so vital and important to God. And why I'm saying this to Christians is because the major reason why premarital sex should be run away from, it's not just because of the moral side of it. It's not just because of the health reason. You are a spiritual person. You are a child of God. If health is the only reason that you have, you will fall. It's the truth. When I was in secondary school, they used to come and play all those South African AIDS videos for us in school. They used to come around because that time it was HIV and AIDS were rampant. And they will gather all of us, GS3, JS they started from gs 3 SS1. They don't do it to GS1, gs 2 They'll now gather all of us in a long haul. Now put projector and start playing us these movies. Did it change anything? No. They play the movies, play the movies, played the movies, finish, finish, finish. In SS2, SS3, people are having sex in the school compound. Man insane is man insane. You cannot defeat or you cannot battle spiritual things with logic and sense. When we're talking about what happens in the kingdom, we have to look at it from kingdom perspective. And there are so many people today that have had and have caught multiple covenants that are not bound by God, or bound by the devil, with different people through sexual promiscuity. And you will hear this and say some people hear this that are not in church and say they're overreacting. Why not? Those people will never be normal. Except they get delivered. It's not a cause. It's not a cause, it's the truth. They will never be normal. Except they repent and what and get delivered. And the blood of Jesus makes them new again. Because it's not just about the physical act. It's about the fact that you are doing something that negates a principle that God is very particular about. Not for himself. For who? For you. For you. And that's the truth about it. Every single Christian I've ever spoken to about abstinence or premarital sex, I don't mention health. Because I know it's not enough, because there are condoms. I don't even mention pregnancy, As in this day and age we're in. There are like 50 billion things you can do to avoid getting pregnant. True of all, true. There was a point in this life when that was enough, a couple of years ago. Now it isn't. Science, is not enough. Even morality, is not enough, because you can deceive yourself. You can what? Deceive yourself. Christians deceive themselves by giving themselves boundaries. Okay, so is the, the sex will not have it all, but everything else before sex is fair game. I'm true of all. It's young. Well, I mean, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not old. I'm younger than some of us here. I know what we do. Everything else before sex is fair game. Since sex is just penetration, so they draw the line there. As long as there's no penetration, nothing happens. But everything else before that is fair game don't deceive yourself. The devil is using you to do like this. Because what he's doing is he's helping you to lower your inhibitions, lower your inhibitions, until he finally what? Gets you. And what we don't know is that there are spirits attached to this thing. I told you that everything is covenant. Anything that is not done under the watchful eye of God and what he wants us to do. You know the devil takes advantage. He comes and inserts and asserts himself. And that's why I say those people will never be normal. Because for those relationships, those sexual relationships that are not bound by God and his own mandate for sex, the devil comes and what? He exerts himself. That's what he does. That's what he does. So that's the reason. It's beyond every superficial reason that we give ourselves. Your sexual purity is important to God. You cannot stand for God if you are not sexually pure. If you're not physically pure. We can teach another day about holiness. But based on our, our scripture for today, I've told you what it specifically means. Paul was talking to Timothy as a young man. He didn't want Timothy to ruin anything. And so many of us here, we never know what, where God will take us tomorrow. We don't know what it will become. The devil has ruined many a man because of sex. Many a woman because of sex. I pray that God will help you in Jesus' name. Please, let's rise up. (laughs)